At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? All right, this morning, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. We're finally into Matthew chapter 25. We've been walking over the past several weeks. Uh, We've been walking through Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Uh, This is known as the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus is gathering his disciples close, and he's on his way to the cross, and he's giving them some instructions about how to prepare for the future. Now, how many of you like to be prepared? Like you got the checklist and you check it twice and, and uh, you never want to be caught off guard. You always want to be prepared. Anyone like that? All right. Well, I am kind of that way about some things. Some things I'm, I'm kind of easygoing, but there are times in which uh, I want to be prepared uh, for big events. And I'll never forget, it was the season after Sarah and I were engaged, we began this year-long process of trying to plan for this wedding. And it was fun. I enjoyed uh, putting all the things together, setting the date and the time and all this. And we decided that we were going to get married in Sarah's aunt's backyard. And so in the middle of July or the beginning of July, uh, it was going to be a beautiful day. We were so excited about that. All the plans had been made. We even uh, had planned, because it was going to be outside, we wanted the garden uh, around where we were going to get married to be beautiful. So early spring, we planted a lot of... um, Uh, impatience and we knew that by the time July came that they would be beautiful we planted like over a hundred flowers and so we were super prepared until the day before the wedding you see we'd planned to get married outside and and uh, on that Thursday because we got married on a Friday on that Thursday the forecast was that it was going to rain all day long and so the reception was a total disaster we we thought we were going to have everything set up on Friday night or on Thursday night, but that didn't happen. So we ended up scrapping everything and we ended up doing the rehearsal dinner at a rehearsal uh, at my church or at our church at the time. And so we ran through everything. Everything was fine. But then Friday morning came and I woke up late and traffic was horrible and I had to run out to the house with all of my friends and, and we had to set up the, the, what was supposed to be set up the night before. So we're supposed to be setting up chairs. It's like 100 degrees and we're setting up chairs. And then because the video guy and the sound guy didn't have a chance to set up the night before, they're there setting up and, and it's getting closer and closer to the time of the wedding. We had guests starting to arrive and I am not even dressed yet. And I thought like this, my wedding day was going to be like this peaceful thing that I was going to wake up and we were just going to have this great day. And it was for Sarah because she had no idea any of this other stuff was going on. And there's this picture. I tried to find it, but I couldn't find it. But there's this picture. We were supposed to start our wedding at five o'clock. And there's a picture of me getting on my tux. And you can see on my watch that it's 5.05. Yeah, I was late for my own wedding. Like I barely even made it. And it was such a stressful time. And one, I thought I was prepared. I thought we had everything worked out and come to find out I wasn't ready at all. But God was so gracious and we got married that day and we've been married for many, many years after that. 
Well, today I, I want us to talk a little bit about being prepared. We started to talk about it last week. That we need to be prepared for when Jesus returns. Because when Jesus does return, there's going to be a great separation. There's going to be a great separation of those that are found faithful, those that are in Christ, and those that are not. And there's an eternal separation that will be taking place. And as we're in the middle of this series, we've entitled it, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today. We're looking at a specific passage where Jesus is looking towards the future. He's looking towards his return. And if we know uh, when, he, when we know what his return will be like and what will happen, it helps us be better prepared for today. So as we walk through this series, we've learned that while we wait for Jesus' return, we know that life is going to be, become progressively worse we see that the difficulties and challenges and suffering in life is going to continue to increase, that the world is going to turn on those that believe and follow Jesus. And eventually Jesus is going to return. And so we've been talking about the need for us to be ready to stay awake and see that he can return at any time. And so today we're going to ask the question, really, are you ready Really, are you ready for Jesus' return? And as we look, the, the big idea from the passage today as we are going to look at one of these parables that Jesus talks about is this is the truth we need to understand, is that true disciples make provisions to go the distance. True disciples make provisions to go the distance. Not just being prepared, but you've got to be prepared with the right provisions. You've got to have what you need in order to make it to the end. So last week as Jesus is talking about the distinction between believers and non-believers, today Jesus is going to make distinctions between true believers and unbelievers. He's coming further closer to the family of God and he's saying that even those that call themselves Christians or that call themselves followers of Jesus may not be properly prepared for Jesus' return. And so this is a deeply challenging passage that we're going to look at today. This is uh, one of the, the most difficult passages in Scripture for those that call themselves followers of Jesus. This is a deep, gut-wrenching gut punch for us to say, hey, am I really a part of the family of God? Let's look in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, who took their lamps and went to meet their bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So Jesus begins, as he's continuing his teaching, he, he begins here by envisioning a time in the future where he's looking to the future and he says, the kingdom of heaven will be like... And so that should be a marker to us to, to understand that Jesus is talking about a time in the future, but how do we prepare for the future now? As we wait for the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says you can prepare now. And so Jesus again uses the illustration of a wedding. This illustration would not have been lost on the disciples. They would have clearly understood what Jesus was talking about because Jesus and his disciples were all from the area of Galilee. And in Galilee, there were specific wedding customs that went along with the covenant of marriage. We talked about this a little bit last week. Remember, the, the typical marriage uh, began with the betrothal ceremony, 
where the, the, bride, or the groom would invite the bride to come to the city gate in the middle of everyone that was the, the most public place that it could be. And as the groom would come to the bride, he would extend a cup to her. And this cup was an opportunity for him saying, I want to enter into this relationship with you. And the bride would receive the cup, and she had the opportunity to choose whether she would receive the cup or reject the cup. And if she received the cup, that would mark the beginning of this betrothal period, which would last about a year. And during that time of a year, the husband would go off, and he would prepare a place for he and his new wife to live. Typically, he would add on to his father's house. And so he had to be busy preparing for the actual wedding day, and she had to prepare for the wedding day. So she would go off, her and her bridesmaids, and they would get all dressed up, or they would pick out their dresses, and, and they would um, get ready for the wedding. And so Jesus is using this imagery once again. And usually the betrothal period would be about a year. And so what we see is this, this kingdom of heaven is, is like ten virgins. These ten virgins, they've been a part of this, this uh, betrothal period. And now they're waiting for the, the groom to come so that the wedding can actually take place. And during this time of betrothal, the only person that actually knew when the wedding would take place was the groom's father. And so everyone had to wait until the, uh, the groom's father would go to the groom and say, now go get your bride. And when he would do that, that's when the wedding would happen. So we see today this illustration that Jesus uses. There are two kinds of bridesmaids. There are five foolish and there are five wise. The foolish ones didn't bring extra flasks of oil, but the wise ones did. And on to verse 5 we see uh, what's taking place now is we've got the, the, the brides and they're waiting in verse 5. And as the bridegroom now is delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. And so here, as, as Jesus is telling the parable, we see a kind of shift or we see the beginning of, of a potential crisis is that as the bridegroom, he is delayed. He's taking longer than was expected. And so we have the 10 women that get tired and they fall asleep. And then moving on, we see in verse 6, but at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Look at the timing of this. The timing is at midnight. It is in the dark. It's at a time that is unexpected. It's at a time that is inconvenient. And according to custom, once the father decides that it's time for the wedding to take place, the father goes to the groom and he says, go get your bride. And then what he does, he gets his party together with his guys and they get horns and they go out into the street and they make a big ruckus all the way that they're going to the bride's house to go get her. And so everyone in the city is awakened. Everyone in the city knows what's going on. This is a, a huge, big deal. So he goes and wakes everyone up. And they say, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. But it's at midnight, and the women have been sleeping. And so they are slowly awakened, and they prepare to get their lamps ready. And in verse 7 we see, Then all the virgins rose, and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. 
for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. This is the first time in the parable that we realize that there is a problem. There becomes a distinction between those that were wise and those that were fools. Some had enough oil, some didn't have oil. This is like being completely unprepared. It's like having a cell phone that's not charged. Right? You can't go out into the night and if you're using your cell phone as, as a, 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 a flashlight, you can't go out into the night and use it if it hasn't been charged. So we see five of these virgins realize they don't have the oil. They're in need of go, getting some. And so their solution was to, to go to the wise and say, hey, can we have some of your oil? And the wise one said, no, we need it for ourselves we don't have enough for you. See, what's interesting is that at this moment, the time for preparation had already passed. It was past the point of no return. They needed to go find some oil, so they were going to have to run out into the night to try and find a dealer so that they could buy some. And we move on with the account in verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. The scene captures the joy of the wedding feast. What would happen when the, the groom would come for his bride is he would gather her and they would go all the way to the father's house where the father had prepared a huge feast, a feast that would go on for days. And everyone was, entered, everyone was welcome in as long as the doors were open. But as soon as the doors shut, the opportunity to enter in to the feast was over. Once those doors were shut, the opportunity had passed. And then in verse 11, we see afterwards the other virgins, the ones that were looking for oil, came, come back and they're outside the master's house and they, they call out, they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered from inside, truly I say to you, I do not know you. So we see these foolish five, they get there late, the doors are closed, they find themselves outside of the party, they are excluded, they can't get in. And what's really interesting is that if we look at the language here, it's almost as though Jesus is transitioning from more of a parable to more about talking about real life. See, the transition was not, he wasn't going, hey, groom, groom. No, it's Lord Lord, it's almost eerie similar to a passage earlier in Matthew. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. To me, this is the most shocking and the most difficult words of Jesus. 
Because Jesus has said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. He goes on later to say, for many of those that have prophesied in his name, have done wonderful works in his name and done all of these great things. He says, there will be some on that great day that think that they are in, that think that they can enter into the Lord's blessing and into the Lord's presence. And they will hear these words, I do not know you. This should be a huge gut punch to all of us who think that we are followers of Jesus. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter in to the Father's house. I do not know you. And then Jesus ends this passage today with this warning. He says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back for his bride. He's coming back for the church, and there will be some inside of the church that will not be able to enter into the master's kingdom. You see, there's a difference True disciples, true followers of Jesus make provisions to go the distance. And I want us to, with the time that we have left, to see three truths from this passage that can help us know whether we are a part of the faithful or a part of the foolish. The first truth that we need to see here today is that superficial discipleship will prove insufficient. Superficial discipleship will prove insufficient. Jesus knew, as he's teaching this to his disciples today, he knew that his days here on earth were almost over. And he's preparing these future leaders of the church and us today for the trials that are to come. See, these foolish took the five lamps, as did the wise ones. But they did not take flasks of oil with them. The ways that they're described, it appears that they don't even realize there's a problem until the midnight comes. Jesus is saying that there will be people who think that they're right with God, but in the end, they're ready, headed for a big surprise. The foolish women in the story are meant to illustrate the tragic type of people. You see, they... They were there at the betrothal service. They were a part of the planning for the wedding. They even put on the gown and they, they looked the part and they did the part, but they in their hearts were unprepared for what was to come. They had all of the right behaviors, but in their hearts there was never a change. There was never a time in which they placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And you know what, it worries me as a pastor that many people think that they're okay with God because maybe they walked an aisle sometime in their life or they prayed a prayer or they go to church or they give to the church or, or they serve the church. I believe on that day there will be many, many people that were very faithful to the church but had no faith in Jesus. And the Lord will say to them, I do not know you. 
Some people try to rest on their work. They say, well, I was, I was a good person. I, I did a lot of good things. And Jesus is going to say, no, it's not about what you did. It's in whom you believed. He's going to say, I don't know you. I want to share with you quickly, the church over the course of history has uh, taken a look at this idea of salvation and has kind of walked through scripture and to look at what is the order of salvation? How, how does someone move into knowing that they are saved and being saved? What is, what is God's part in saving and what, what is my responsibility in all this? And I just want to share with you these 10 steps or these, the order of salvation as it's given to us in 10 different ways. So salvation begins in the past. And scripture talks about this word called election. That before the foundations of the earth were laid, God has had choice and has chosen those whom will be saved. So this happened way before the foundations of the earth were laid. There was a time in which we were elected. Then the second part of, of salvation is the gospel call. So this, the call of the gospel, the proclaiming of the message of the gospel has to be heard. So if you hear the gospel, you have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. You can't respond to the gospel unless you hear the gospel. So the gospel call. Then third, there's this thing that God does. It's called regeneration. God begins to work in your life, or the way scripture talks about it, is that our blinded eyes are, were able to see. God does this mighty work that this gospel message or the person of Jesus might at one time seem foolish to us, but once God begins to regenerate inside of us, Jesus becomes the most beautiful, precious thing in our lives. So that happens in a moment. And then there's a thing called conversion. This is where, by faith, we trust in Jesus and we repent of our old sins and repent of our old lives. And in a moment, we are converted through faith and repentance. Then from that moment, at that same very moment, we are justified. God says that because of what Jesus has done, we are in right legal standing before the God of the universe. All of our sins are forgiven. And then the Bible also tells us that at that same moment, we experience adoption. We become members of God's family. We become his children. And that happens in an instant. And then the next order of salvation goes through sanctification. This is something that begins at the moment of salvation, but lasts for the rest of our lives, where we go through this process of being more and more like Jesus and less and less like our old selves. So our conduct and our character and our lives change from that moment. And then the eighth step of salvation or the eighth order of salvation is perseverance. This is where those who are in Christ remain in Christ and we remain Christians until God calls us home, which is the next step of salvation. There is death where our bodies here on this earth die and we immediately go to be in the Lord's presence where the 10th step is where everything is realized through our glorification. See, this is salvation. This is the work that God does in our lives, in us and for us. And I think of all of these things, the two greatest signs of great or true salvation come in the sanctification and the perseverance. Those, those are what Jesus says, that, is that when we are in Christ, we produce fruit. 
And we see this even in, in Paul is writing to Galatians. He says there's this, this fruit that is produced in the believer. And so if you, have, if you see yourself growing in maturity, growing in holiness, moving and act, taking on more of these spiritual fruit, that's a good sign that you are in Christ. But that's not the only sign. But if you're the same today as you were 20 years ago, you might not know the Lord. Because God has designed us to grow. God has made us so that we change and are transformed over the time. So sanctification is a great, is a good sign that you are in Christ. But also so is perseverance. And that's what I want us to see next. Because the second truth is in Christ the, uh, the delays test us. The delays of God test us. For we see in this passage, the bridegroom, or the bridegroom was delayed. He didn't come exactly at the right time. He didn't come exactly at the year moment. It was sometime after that. And as every second went on beyond that year, the questions must have begun to rise within the bride. When's he coming? Is he coming? And the delays come. And the foolishness of these five women were exposed because they were not ready for the delay. They didn't bring enough oil with them. And so when they fall asleep and, and the bride, the groom returns, they are not ready. See, the delays test us. Life is going to test us. Sometimes people have believed a false gospel and then when their life experience doesn't measure up to the gospel that they, that they believed in, then they re come to the place of rejecting Jesus. And Jesus was very clear about something like this. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells another parable about four soils and, and the seed. And he goes on and he says, the, the sower went out to sow the seed and the, sow, the seed itself is the gospel. And he says the gospel landed on four different types of soil. First, it landed on the hard-packed soil where the seed came in and the, the soil was so hard that the seed could not penetrate. This is the person that is hardened against the gospel. They hear it and they reject it. And he goes on and says, well, there's a second soil. The second soil was the soil that was, uh, had some rocks in it. So this rocky soil, the seed falls on the rocky soil. And as it does, it, Jesus says, this is the person who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet there is no place for the roots to grow. He endures for a little while, but then when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, he immediately falls away. So this is the one that hears the gospel and understands that God wants to save them and God wants to give them a hope and a future and, and, and bring uh, peace to the brokenness. This person immediately receives it and says, yes, I want this part of Jesus. But then when persecution and trial comes, this person says, this isn't what I signed up for. And this person falls away. Jesus says that person never had faith to begin with. Even though they showed signs of faith, they didn't have faith to begin with. And then he goes on and says, the third soil was a thorny soil. And he says, as, as for this, the, sow, the seed that was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the seedfulness of the riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. 
So again, the, the second soil was the one that received persecution and then falls away. The third soil is the one that hears the gospel message and then gets enticed by the riches of the world and says, no, something out here in the world is greater than this gospel message. And so even though there was signs of life and signs of fruit to begin with, it doesn't remain. But Jesus says there's only one soil, the good soil. This is the soil that hears the word, receives the word, and allows that word to produce fruit, some 30, 60, 90 fold of what it was, what it was sown inside of it. He says that is the one that has believed, heard and believed and is true. Now, here's the crazy thing. Now, we truly believe here at Woodside that it is impossible for someone to lose their salvation. We, we believe in the assurance of the saints. When you come to place faith in Jesus, when you truly place faith in Jesus, you are sealed and you are secure. Nothing can snatch you out of the hands of the Father. But this parable is scary in the fact that there were two soils that seemed as though they had life. And here's the challenging thing about this passage. We have no idea, because it's a parable, we have no idea the amount of time in which it appeared as though it had life. But in essence, it doesn't make it to the end. This person sees a better message or a different message. Or this, this, this person feels the pressures of life and says, no, this is too much for me, too much to bear, I'm out. So tests come, and we will be tested as well as where our faith lies. And thirdly, I want us to see that preparation, preparations can't be borrowed. As these five foolish bridesmaids begin to hear that the groom is coming and, and the wedding is happening. At that moment, they were ill-prepared. And so they went to the others and said, hey, can we have some of your oil? And the other says, no, because if we give you ours, we will not be prepared ourselves. Preparations can't be borrowed. This is another deeply challenging statement because some people grow up in the church. Their family's always been a part of the church. And so they feel like Christianity is kind of inherited to them. Like my mom was a Christian. Her mom was a Christian. Her mom was a Christian. Her mom was a Christian. So that must mean that I'm a Christian. And there are many, many people that do the right things but don't have the right faith. And each one of us must come to the place where we each individually decide what we do with Jesus. Your parents can't make the decision for you. Your kids can't make the decision for you. Each one of us must individually decide what we do with Jesus. Several years ago, I had an opportunity to, uh, I was reading an article um, that was written in like the Western Recorder. And in this article, it was talking about, uh, I, I was shocked because in the title, uh, it was talking about uh, a church called First Baptist Fulton, which is uh, the church that I pastored years ago. And the story, uh, the article was about a woman named Alma Brock. 
Now, Alma, Miss Alma was a super nice woman. She had been a part of the church almost her whole life, her and her husband. Her husband was a deacon. She served uh, in the choir. She was on many, many committees. She served in the children's ministry. She raised her kids in the church. Her children were, were um, followers of Jesus. Her grandchildren were being raised in the church. And so everyone's, uh, what everyone could see about her life, she was living a great Christian life. But it wasn't until she was 82 years old that she began to have doubts. She began to have doubts about her faith. And so she went to her pastor at the time. I wasn't her pastor at the time. Uh, but she went to her pastor at the time and was just like, hey, I'm starting to have doubts. And so they, they talked together and they, they read through scripture together. And, and what had happened was she had realized that if she tracked everything back to her moment of salvation or her salvation story, it happened while she was at a camp. And she was talking with some, some person that was counseling with her. And that person told her just to pray a prayer. And if she prayed a prayer, then she was going to be okay. And so Miss Alma, in, in, in all her best things she could do, is she prayed a prayer. And every time she'd go through the rest of her life, she continually would go back to that moment. And she would trust in the fact of what that person said, not in what she believed in her heart. So at 82 years old, this woman decided that what took place this many, many years ago was not real faith. And there in that moment, at that day, she gave her life to Jesus. She surrendered everything to him. If we don't have those moments in our lives where we realize that we are sinners and that we stand before a holy God condemned, and then if we don't look to Jesus and, and see what Jesus' sacrifice was on the cross, where Jesus went to the cross and paid for the sin of the world, and the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, and Jesus died and was buried again, if we are not looking to Jesus and placing our faith in him alone for our salvation, if we're finding our salvation in anything else, it's not going to be sufficient. Our faith must be in Jesus alone. True disciples make provisions to go the distance. That means we're trusting in him. We come to the place where we surrender everything to him. Have you come to that place in your life? Are you really ready? Are you really, really ready for Jesus to return? If you are, then we get a chance to celebrate and being reminded that we can stay steadfast in this life because Jesus is coming back. Don't worry about what this next year may hold or the next year or the future may hold. Don't worry if, if you get the dreaded curse of cancer. Don't worry if people around you die. Don't worry if you lose your job. Don't worry if things don't work out like you thought that they might because God is still in control and we can be, remain steadfast because we know there's coming a time that he's coming back for us. And though it may be delayed, and though we, we may start to fear and we may start to doubt, we don't have to because we know that he is faithful and true and he is coming back. But for some here today, you need to come to the place of where you believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins and call on the name of Jesus for salvation. If that's you, 
Man, I, I would love for you to come after the service and say, Pastor, I need to know Jesus, and I'd love to walk with you through that so that you can know that you know that you know. Or maybe you're here and you've come with somebody. Well, talk to that person after the service and just say, hey, tell me how I can know for sure that I know. Jesus is coming back. And let it not be said of us that Jesus doesn't look at us at that moment and say, depart from me, for I don't know you. Instead, let us live for him to say, welcome, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you that today that you have given us this message, this warning, but also thank you, God, that you have given us the way. We don't have to be without the provisions. We don't have to be without salvation. For you have made the way and you have told us clearly that we can know that we know if we give you everything. Father, there are some that are guilty of just accepting you as savior. They just want to be free from hell and, and just be freed from the, the, the curse of their sin. But they don't want you to be the Lord of their life. So Father, today, if there's someone here that your spirit is speaking to today, may they not grow cold to your voice. But instead, may your spirit be a reminder of their need for you. Father, today, encourage us, strengthen us, and help us to respond to the message we've heard today in a way that you're calling us to respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.